the original theory behind this was that as a bullet travels down a, a rifle barrel or a gun barrel, it, it's spinning and it picks up these little striations or lines, markings, that the question is, are they unique to that particular gun? Used to be that, that rifle barrels were all hand bored, for instance, and they were, they did have, in fact, unique characteristics. Now everything's mass produced to precision. And so it's only with wear and tear that a gun may impart these sort of unique or, or relatively unique characteristics on a bullet. But it's one thing to come in and say that there are similarities here. It's another to say that it's a match, to, that this bullet came from this gun and no other gun in the world. So how often does that occur? All the time. Oh my. All the time. Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. Today, we have a returning champion, one of our favorite guests from the past, Jerome Francis, Jerry Buting. Welcome back to the program, Jerry. Thank you. Good to be here. So I kind of like to turn the discussion now in the second half of the show to what you've been up to lately. And there is a tendency, you know, unless you were under a rock, you knew about making a murderer and you became kind of an international celebrity. First of all, how odd was that? Very odd. I mean, it was totally unexpected to suddenly be not able to walk down the street without people calling out your name and wanting selfies. And, you know, it was, it was very, very unusual. And, and I don't think anybody could prepare for it. Thankfully, that has now dissipated. But it, before it did, it really g did give us an opportunity, and my, my co-counsel, Dean Strang, and I, to go around the world talking to people about not just the docuseries Making a Murderer and the Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey cases that are the subject matter of it, but also the, the justice system, the criminal legal system as a whole. And I was often su surprised at the interest that people had in other countries about America's legal system. But what I found, because I would do some research on these countries before I would go to speak at them, and everywhere from Finland to Australia and in between, was that almost every country, in fact, every country, has had wrongful convictions. Some more than others, some have more than others have been exposed. It's more difficult to, to get a conviction reversed in some countries than it is in others. But everybody, it strikes a chord, everybody's worst nightmare, I think, is that they or their loved one would be wrongly convicted and, and imprisoned for decades. And yet that's what we see in making a murder. And that's what we see in, in America all the time. A, a year or so ago, we were, we were getting exonerations at the rate of about 150 a year. That's three a week. Now, uh, when you say we, are you talking about the Innocence Project or some other entity? I'm talking about the United States as a whole. Okay. Okay. Um, mostly from innocence projects in various parts of the country. Okay. Um, Could you give our audience a little history of the innocence project and where it fits in and how it works? Sure. So the innocence project was started in, in New York by Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld. And it was um, famous OJ lawyer. That's right. It, it came out of the advent of DNA because those two realized pretty quickly that DNA could not only be a powerful tool for the prosecution, but it could also answer questions about people whose convictions may or may not have been 
false or wrong. And so they started a clinic, law students. The irony of the whole Innocence Network of, they're now Innocence Project all over the country. In fact, many, many parts of the world. The irony is that it's sort of fallen on the shoulders of law students supervised by lawyers to correct these mistakes, miscarriages of justice, rather than the lawyers themselves, because people can't afford to have pro bono attorneys most of the time. They can't afford to hire an attorney to, to litigate for years and years and years. And so um, Sheck and Newfeld set up this clinic and they started getting people, inmates, writing to them with, can you look at my case? Can you take a look at the case? And the, the law students would go through them and they would sort of look at the, the few cases they thought that they could handle, which was a very small handful back in the day. And they would look to see, is this a case where maybe a DNA test might disprove some of the state's evidence or even better, completely exonerate the defendant? And in those cases, then they would get a little bit of money and they would try and do DNA tests. And ultimately, many hundreds of people have been exonerated, thousands now, as a result of DNA and other kinds of evidence. And then one of the things then that was most interesting to me was as, as the exonerations mounted, people, academics primarily, started studying, well, what went wrong in these cases? Why were these people wrongly convicted? Because the DNA proves they were wrongly convicted. And what we discovered was kind of shocking, that approximately eyewitness, faulty eyewitness identification was the number one uh, ground that contributed to wrongful conviction, but also prosecutorial misconduct, false or flawed forensic evidence, and false confessions. When juveniles were involved, it was discovered that approximately 43% of them had falsely confessed to a crime they clearly didn't commit because the DNA proved they were innocent. So did all 43% of them immediately get their records cleared up and get released? No, it took, took decades, years. Okay. And that's another problem with, with our justice system is that it takes way too long to undo a conviction. There's this doctrine of finality that you know we don't like to reopen a conviction and, and put everybody back through it. And so the burden in order to do that is, is extremely high and much higher than it should be. And so it often takes years and years and years. I had an Innocence Project case that that I, I won where I got a, a gentleman out after 29 years of incarceration. Wow. But I was representing him for 15 of those years. It took me that long. And I see increasingly, and I know this was an element with Stephen Avery, that there are efforts on the part of the state to compensate people who have been wrongfully incarcerated. I would imagine that that also costs state and local governments quite a bit of money. It does. But what people don't understand is just because you're wrongly convicted and may spend decades in prison doesn't mean you can get money in a civil lawsuit. There are standards. If they just make a mistake, you're sort of out of luck. That's not grounds to sue for money. If somebody violates the law in, in obtaining your conviction, then you can. And even before all of the, the DNA exonerations occurred, many states had some compensation available 
but it's usually been minimal. Wisconsin, for instance, has, even today, if you are wrongly convicted, you can apply to a compensation board and you will get $5,000 per year of incarceration up to a maximum of five years. Wow. $25,000 is all you get for five years of incarceration, much less 15, 20, 30. Now, many states have tried to remedy that. And Texas, in fact, has, last I saw, they had an arrangement where, where somebody would get $80,000, but they had to forego their right to a civil lawsuit in order to do that. There's different models, but by and large, most of these individuals get out of prison and have to rebuild their lives with very little to start with. So you've identified a whole series of things that have led to these exonerations. We talked about prosecutorial misconduct. Is there anything that can really be done about that? There's a lot that could be done. There's very little that is being done. So there's um, no appetite for it, in essence. I would say there's no appetite for it. And in fact, there was a study done in California a few years ago about, so I mentioned earlier that lawyers are we have certain ethical rules we have to all comply with, whether it's prosecution, defense, civil lawyers, whatever. And if a lawyer or a court becomes aware that a, uh, another lawyer has been violating those ethical rules, they have an obligation themselves to refer them to the attorney regulation board, whoever that might be in each state. So somebody did a study of hundreds of cases in the state of California, where the Court of Appeals had reversed a conviction and raised a concern or, you know, a specific concern that there was prosecutorial misconduct involved in the first conviction. And in not one single case did the Court of Appeals ever refer those prosecutors to the ethics board. Why is that? You know, there's, there's lots of theories. Some of them are, you know, they, they don't want to punish prosecutors. And yet there are a few cases, very few cases now, where prosecutors who uh, are caught deliberately violating the law have been actually criminally prosecuted. Civilly, so what, though, what, what are the typical violations? Is it withholding evidence and that kind of thing? Withholding evidence or destroying evidence. Oh, my. Violating court orders. Yes, there's unbelievable misconduct that's that's reported and misleading the court. So there's a case out of New York, I believe it was, or Massachusetts, where the, the prosecutors were found by the court to have been, to deliberately misled them, to, to have claimed that they turned over all these, this evidence of um, flawed forensics in a case when they in fact did not. And when it came out, they sanctioned the prosecution and, and um, ultimately they were fired, a couple of them, I think it was, were fired from their jobs, but it, it didn't mean that they couldn't be lawyers in some other capacity. So it's, it's rare that prosecutors are really held to account. Occasionally they are. There was a, a judge or a former prosecutor who then became a judge who was found to have violated the law and actually got a... Uh, a jail sentence, 30 days or something like that, but not the kind of significant penalties that are necessary. Now, and we're talking about criminal penalties. Right, right. Um, the way you might actually 
reduce some of this misconduct is in the civil arena. So there's this judicially created doctrine called qualified immunity or absolute immunity. So okay. we, we heard a lot about- Could you describe what that means to our audience who may not know? Sure. What that means is that if, if a um, police officer or a prosecutor or a judge or a witness commits misconduct, you can sue them only in limited situations to try and get money for the, for the misconduct. With police, they're what's called qualified immunity, which is to say they're not completely immune, but it's a, it's a very narrow kind of misconduct that, that allows you to sue them. In other words, you can sue for monetary damages unless somebody has immunity. If they have immunity, then they are immune to suit. That's right. Okay. To civil damages. They're immune to suit. Gotcha. Um, and with prosecutors and judges, it's been ruled that they have absolute immunity. As long as with the prosecutors uh, in, in their instance, as long as they're acting in their traditional prosecutorial function. So if they're in court and they uh, deliberately mislead the, the, the court and the defense and they withhold evidence that would have shown the defendant was innocent or would, you know, potentially exculpatory evidence, as we call it. Um, there's no civil remedy for that. They can't be sued because they're absolutely immune. Now, if they, before the case ever gets to court, the U.S. Supreme Court sort of carved out one exception. If before the case is ever formally charged in court, the prosecution commits misconduct in a role, let's say, where he's just advising the police you know, go out and arrest this guy, even though they know it's the wrong guy. Then they can be sued and there's only qualified immunity, but that's the rare case, the vast majority of times. So when it comes to prosecutorial misconduct, then prosecutors know that there's very little punishment if they get caught. And therefore there's very little reason for the bad apples that are out there to be deterred from committing misconduct. It's, it's also pretty rare that you even find out about it. Oftentimes it's years later, some other prosecutor takes over the case, like in the Stephen Avery case, and they discover that there was a police report in Stephen Avery's file about the actual perpetrator of the rape, that another department believed this guy was the rapist, not Stephen Avery. That information was deliberately withheld from the defense and was, but was in the DA's file. The only reason they knew that was because 18 years later, a new prosecutor looked in the file and was like, whoa, you know, this was never turned over. So it's unlikely in most instances that the prosecution is going to get caught if they're committing misconduct. And unfortunately, even when they are, the, the punishment isn't very significant. Now, I remember when we last spoke that you and Dean Strang, along with some others, had started an organization to attempt to remedy some of these things, including most specifically the problems with what they call forensic evidence. And I, I wonder if you could talk to our audience a little bit about that and how it's gone and what kind of things you've been attempting to address. Sure. So I mentioned that the, the studies of people who have been exonerated found that in the case of forensic science, approximately 25% of the wrongful convictions involved just plain wrong or um, sometimes fraudulent forensic science uh, evidence that was presented to the court. We're talking hair fiber, 
guns, bite uh, mark evidence, microscopic hair comparison, things of that nature. And DNA too? Not so much DNA because okay. DNA is, is, is really the only or almost the only forensic science that came into the courts from a, a different application, medical use. And therefore, before it was brought into the court system, it had already gone through all the scientific validation and the protocols had been done. Uh, whereas the vast, what people don't understand is the vast majority of forensic evidence that's used in court has never been scientifically validated, ever. It came into courts, it was devised um, in part as the brainchild of J. Edgar Hoover from the FBI ah. in the 30s. And many cases were being um, were coming down to he said, she said, or you know, potentially unreliable eyewitness identification. And the belief was, well, let's try and bring science into these cases and um, it will be more objective and the jurors will believe it's more objective and therefore have less reasonable doubt. But the problem was that, that many of these things like bite mark comparisons, microscopic hair comparisons, where they find a hair on the body or at the scene, and then they pluck a hair from the defendant, and they go through it. They look at a double field microscope, and, and uh, an analyst says that they're similar or they're consistent, or they're never supposed to, but sometimes they'll say it's a match. Well, we've discovered that that's completely unreliable, completely unreliable. And now, just to clarify, are there proper ways to do those things? In other words, obviously, there are improper, inaccurate ways of, of you know, analyzing forensic evidence. Can one take hair fiber or bite marks and do it correctly? Or is it something just as a whole that really shouldn't be utilized? Bite marks is impossible. You, you cannot okay. do it properly. Distinguishing that from, from dental identification, that's different. Sure. We're talking about bite marks on the human skin. Human skin is much too pliable. You cannot leave an impression that can provide relevant, reliable evidence of whether or not a particular individual was the source of that bite. Okay. Um, other types of evidence there, there is. So one of, the, one of the problems you have, let, let's take ballistics. For sure. Instance, or, and we're talking about marks. guns. Sure, guns, tool mark evidence. The idea of what they would do is they would find a gun or a shell or a bullet at the scene or in the body, and then they would find a suspect gun, perhaps the suspect was arrested with it, and they would test fire the gun and then compare that bullet or shell to the one found at the crime scene, again, with these dual field microscopes. And they could render opinions about whether the the markings were similar or not. What the original theory behind this was that as a bullet travels down a, a rifle barrel or a gun barrel, it, it's spinning and it picks up these little striations or lines, markings, that the question is, are they unique to that particular gun? It used to be that, that rifle barrels were all hand bored, for instance, and they, were, they did have, in fact, unique characteristics. Now everything's mass produced to precision. And so it's only with wear and tear that a gun may impart these sort of unique or, or relatively unique characteristics on a bullet. But it's one thing to come in and say that there are similarities here. It's another to say that it's a match, to, that this bullet came from this gun and no other gun in the world. So how often does that occur? All the time. 
Oh my. All the time. And the problem is they, there is no database. So for instance, with DNA, there's a database and you can come up with the frequency of finding a particular profile or a particular part of DNA in the general population. With fingerprints, there's a database and you could figure out the probability, what's the frequency of finding a particular oral pattern on a fingerprint. But until very, very recently, the, the tool mark and ballistics field had done nothing to try and create a database. And so when an expert, so-called expert, comes into court and says, this bullet had to come from this gun and no other, they don't know that because they haven't been able to compare it to all of the other bullets that may have, may have very, very, very similar characteristics from a completely different gun. So this pattern matching type of, of uh, forensic disciplines is, is, you see it everywhere, bite marks, hair comparison, ballistics, tread marks, or shoe prints, all of these things, there's no database. Or how common is the pattern of a shoe that's an Air Jordan, for instance? What model? How much and, do you weigh? Right. And so until, and not only that, then they have to determine what's, we can get a little, too, little bit in the weeds on this, but there's no such thing as a perfect forensic test. There is always an error rate. That is, scientists know this of all, all scientific tests, not just forensics. There are false positives and there are false negatives. And unless you study the protocol, the procedure that's being used, you don't know what the frequency potential error is. So I've had these ballistics uh, experts come in and they say, well, what's your error rate, sir? Oh, I have no error rate. I've never made a mistake. <laughs> and they believe that. So, you know, these are just some of the things. So anyway, we, we started this, this nonprofit called the Center for Integrity and Forensic Science. And it I is, find it, I just Google Center for Forensic Integrity and Science on, on the web or what? Correct. Well, you can Google it or uh, those words or you just do CIFS.org. Okay. CIFS.org. CIFS.org. And you'll, you'll find the website and see what we're doing. And the idea is that we're, we're the only nonprofit in the country that's working to try and improve forensic science, to keep out the junk science from the courtroom and to strengthen the, the valid science that there is. Because science, you know, we're dealing with, Neil deGrasse Tyson talks about the illiteracy of America when it comes to science and math. And therefore our jurors and judges and lawyers tend to be scientifically illiterate and so when except csi of course that of comes course. in material well, and that's too. and that's part of and that's part of the reason that that uh you know hollywood has portrayed forensic evidence as being conclusive that there is a test that will conclusively determine guilt or innocence where they can match this little bit of dirt to a soil sample from such and such a place and prove that it came from there and that's just bogus it's completely false and so jurors come in thinking that there is a test that, that can conclusively prove guilt or not. And so when evidence is presented in court, judges are supposed to be the gatekeepers. They're supposed to weed out the unreliable um, science from coming into court. But as I said, you know, many lawyers and many judges aren't scientifically proficient either. And so it's very difficult for them to um, 
it, and there is a there's a definite bias. So uh, in the courts. So here, here's an interesting study that came out of Wisconsin. There's something called the Daubert rule, where the United States Supreme Court said that um, judges are supposed to, in a pretrial motion, decide whether or not evidence, scientific evidence, expert testimony should be permitted to be presented to the jury. And there's a whole list of criteria they're supposed to go through. Wisconsin, until about 2010, was not like that. The, ours was wide open. You could pretty much get anything in. They changed it after paint manufacturers lost a big lead paint case and they wanted to tighten up and, and, and basically make it harder for plaintiffs in civil cases. to Injured people with brain damage. Exactly, to, to represent and, and get compensation for those people. And so, but it applied across the board, including criminal. And uh, a year or so ago, somebody did a, a study of cases where Daubert challenges had been raised in a criminal case that was reported by the defense trying to get evidence in or by the state trying to keep defense evidence out or vice versa. And what they found is it was 114 to nothing that the state won every single motion. Now, come on. You know, that can't be in a fair system where judges are really applying the Daubert case fairly and equally to both sides. So that really doesn't happen to the way it should anyway. So there's there's flaws with the, the system that the Supreme Court came up with to try and weed out faulty evidence uh, um, and only allow proper evidence to come in. But unfortunately, it's it's growing. It's, you know, it used to be just things like hair blood, bullets, fingerprints. Now there's all kinds of forensic evidence. There's algorithms, there's uh, cell phone, there's digital evidence. There's all kinds of types of forensic, new, new types of forensic evidence that's not been tested. Like an Adam's case. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And some of it is proprietary where the private companies are resisting releasing to the court or the defense their data because it's a trade secret. It could harm their product and their profit. We we had a great show on that last summer with a federal judge here, Paul Grimm, and a colleague of his about admitting artificial intelligence as evidence. And the proprietary trademark information made it so it almost was impossible to get things admitted. You knew they worked. You just weren't allowed to know how they worked. Right. And, and to know whether there, there are baked-in biases, for instance, that, that uh, tip the scale in one way or the other. You know, it's, it's become very, very technical. You need to have experts. It's also more expensive to try and challenge those cases than it ever used to be. So SIFS, the Center for Integrity and Forensic Science, is we have an advisory board of scientists. And um, we're, for the first time, teaching at UW-Madison, a law school course where both law students and graduate students in the biological sciences are studying together forensic evidence and learning how, how to properly apply it or not apply it. And you know, I, I remember, you remember in law school, we had a specialized course called Evidence. Right. It's a, it's a year long in most cases. But nowadays, there, there are some some Law schools have a small part of that that might be forensic evidence, but the vast majority of it is not. And so one of the ideas is to try and help train lawyers a little bit more into 
the kind of science they're going to have to confront in the courtroom in their futures and start them off early. Uh, and, and so this, uh, this course is the first of that sort. It's been very successful. Now. I think it's, we've done it for three years in a row now. That's fantastic. I regret to say that we have actually run out of time. I would like to think that that course would come here to Maryland and could be utilized at the University of Maryland and University of Baltimore. And maybe we would kind of spread fairness around for criminal defendants in the United States. You know, it could be. It's, it's in fact designed, um, Keith, Professor Keith Findlay, who's one of the co-founders of SIFS, is the one that teaches it. And it's, he's designed a whole curriculum that could easily be exportable to another law school, but you've got to have it at part of a university that also has biological sciences in this instance, so that the, you've got graduate students and law students working together. But um, yeah, it definitely could be used elsewhere. If somebody's interested, who's listening, certainly you can contact them. I'll put some feelers out. I'd really like to thank you for coming back to the show, Jerry. It's meant a lot to the program. You know, you're doing good work. And God bless you, and thank you very much. Thank you. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.